21 years ago, I walked into a movie theater in Dallas, Texas, the town where I grew up, to see Wes Anderson's film, The Royal Tannenbaums. In the lobby, there was a blow-up of a New York Times review, and the headline read, just 29 years old and already a master director. And I remember burning with envy, but also pride at a young man's achievement. Years later, when I saw the Way Brothers' Wild Wild Country, I felt something similar, though without the envy this go around. Now it was pure joy at a masterfully executed piece of work. Before Wild Wild Country, the Way Brothers had directed the Battered Bastards of Baseball. They would go on to direct Untold for Netflix. But Wild Wild Country marked them as a force to be reckoned with. One of the collaborators I've been lucky to share with them is the brilliant cinematographer Adam Stone, who DP'd The Last Narc for me, as well as the current series I'm putting together now. And so, for several reasons, I was thrilled to sit down with the Way Brothers and get to know the artists behind the work. The discussion that follows is a record of our first interaction. Hopefully, there will be many more, as they are kindred spirits, and I can't wait to see what they unveil next. With any luck, one day, we'll work together on something. So without further ado, I give you a conversation with the Way Brothers. I think what I'd love to uh, do, hopefully not annoyingly to you guys, yeah. is, um, hey, you've got a fantastic new series and film out. Let's go back to the old shit. But that is exactly right. what I want to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, I- I'm curious about the, like, birth of, um, you know, you're coming off Bastards, right? And I'm, I'm curious about the, like, the birth of of the next series and sort of how that comes to you and the box of tapes in Portland. Like, tell me the story of how how the how the series begins to be born. Wild Wild Country. Sure. Yeah. So we had finished Battered Bastards, which was like we kind of leveraged like every penny that we had to make that. We kind of self financed it. Like Max sold his crappy like nineteen ninety five Jeep and like we it wasn't used that crappy. It was pretty crappy. <laughs> don't just the Jeep, bro. Don't just don't just the Jeep. <laughs> we used like the five grand from that and my wife and I who produced it had just gotten married and so we used like our marriage money. We kinda of went and self financed that and like kind of had like a dream run with it and got her interviews and, and found some incredible archive up there in Oregon, got it into Sundance. Um, sold it to Netflix like super early on. I believe it was like their second original documentary. They had done The Square, which had come out that yep. we saw, which was fantastic. And then they had like bought the Mitt documentary that was premiering at our Sundance. And it was a super new company, but I'd watched House of Cards and was kind of like, that's a really pretty fascinating new way to, to watch art and, and media. So we sold it to them. And then I think like after that, which I'm sure you're familiar with, like you have somewhat success in like a genre. And then like we were getting just tons of sports stories sent our way, which at, we we're kind of our, our knee jerk reaction was like, let's do something different. Yep. Like let's, let's flex different muscles. Let's do something that intrigues us. Um, and it was like our last day of rapping battered bastards with the archive. We were getting like all the 2k scans back from the old 16 millimeter film yep. um, at a place called the Oregon Historical Society, which is like this film repository library up there um, in Portland. And there was a young archivist who had like just moved from Brooklyn who got like hired to be the main archivist there at this library. And he was like, what are you guys doing next? And, and we were, I feel like why that's an important detail is Cause like, I feel like these like film archivists, this sounds like I'm knocking them, but they're like these older people yep. that like, yep. that like are super precious about the material and they're all about the organization, but that they're not like necessarily doing what this guy was doing, which was like, how we have an amazing material here. Like how can we use this, our, our amazing collection in like new and interesting ways. Yeah. So it kind of took a, a new, a new person. You owe, you owe that archivist, like <laughs> by the way, for the <laughs> rest long, of your yes. lives. And Absolutely. he was like a little uncertain. He's like, Hey, like, have you heard of Bogwan Roshnish? And I was like, never heard the name. Like, no, nothing about it. Like it was, was super foreign to me. And he's like, and he was a little nervous. He's like, well, I pitched a couple other filmmakers. Like, none of them really found it that interesting. But, like, did you know that there was, like, this city built from scratch by this, like, spiritual community 
that bust in thousands of homeless people and ended up poisoning an entire town. And I was just like, wait, what? Get the fuck out of here. Like, there's no way that's true, you know? And he started popping in like these old Umatic tapes, which yep. was like kind of like a precursor to like VHS. And he had, I think there was over 500 of them that they had kind of like organized and stacked. And he just started, the first one he put in was the 1983 World Festival, where sannyasins from all over the world would travel for this like one week, like kind of Burning Man festival there on the commune. And it was just thousands of people in red doing these wild like breathing meditation techniques and dancing and and having like the time of their life and the visuals right away i think as a storyteller or we work in the visual medium was immediately like holy crap there's something really really rich here and then the second tape he put in was ma anon sheila who ended up becoming our 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 main character such an amazing character And she was on some local news station, like, cursing out this, like, older dude who was interviewing her. And she was, like, flipping him off and, like, just so so much, like, spunk and, like, attitude. And, like, she was smart. And then immediately I was like, all right, I need to know, like, who is this woman? And that's what really kind of, like, got us interested in the story. Less so, like, the Bogwan and the cult, but really, like, who is this woman? How did she build this city? And we went and, like, tracked her down. Mac found a, an email from, like, a retirement community that she runs up there. And we emailed her and it was kind of off to the it races. Was like, yeah, there. it was, like, a really interesting time period because, you know, after, like, Battered Bastards came out, we, like, you know, for us, that was, like, going from nothing to something big for us. Like, before that, we had nothing. And then all of a sudden, like, so for, like, when I look back at the things we've done, like, that was almost the step that was the most crucial or the biggest because it's, like... You know, you tell people you're making this documentary and that could mean a million different things. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, we have to polish this up because we're going to have a world premiere at Sundance. And now people are talking to us about buying this thing and distributing it. But after that, it all come and gone. Like, like Chap said, it was interesting. I, In hindsight, I'm almost surprised at like how little opportunity there was for us to go do something. Like I, in hindsight, you'd almost think like, well, that's the start of it. And you just kind of keep rolling and rolling. But we really like didn't know what we were going to do next. All this archive footage fell into our lap. We like cut like a, like a long sizzle. Like, I don't even know if you'd call it a sizzle. It's maybe like a 17 minute video. And it was, it, like was some- it all archival or like, had you shot any interviews at that point? It was all archival. Yeah, all archival at that point. And then, like, we had sales agents, Dan and Josh Braun of Submarine, and, like, had the Jinx, like, come out yet? The Jinx had not come out yet, but they were, like, privy to, like, that sale to HBO. And they're like, hey, there's this cool kind of, like, true crime thing. Like, they shot the first episode. They're actually doing it as a series. And they're like, what do you guys think about doing it as a series? And I was like, at that point, like, I don't even think making a murder had come out yet. It was so early kind of in this in the game, which has been completely transformed, like since the time we've all been like working. Absolutely. And my only memory was like kind of like PBS docs. Like I love Ken Burns. Obviously, he's done amazing work, but it's it's not quite what what we're interested in doing. And there was some other doc series that felt like watered down almost compared to a feature film. And he was like, I'm telling you, like, there's this thing called the Jinx. It's going to be big. Like, it's it's really well done. I think that there's a potential with this story to do a longer format. Um, and he was really the first person to kind of, like, put that in our ear. And then the more I started sleeping on it and I realized, like, holy shit, we literally have over, like, 300 hours of raw archive. It's not just, like, yeah. news clips. It is, like, these raw umatic tapes that are unedited is when I thought, like, man, maybe there is, like, a bigger scope here and, like, how, how can you bring, like, the universe building of a Game of Thrones or something like that? And how do you build – how do you do universe building in the documentary genre? And then once we started thinking about that, I think, like, our brains kind of caught fire with what could be done in the genre. So so I love it. it it's, you, it's really – you're sort of, like, sketching the recent history of how the, like, medium has changed with – you know, all of a sudden the jinx comes along and like audiences respond to it. And it's like, wow, the multi-part serialized story, like everything that's great about television, but also it's closed ended like a movie. So you've got a beginning, middle and end. And like that worked, you guys are on the early curve of it. But back up a step even further, which is why was all this shit archived so clearly and so well? And why was it held on to? Um, Because had that not happened, you know. I don't think we have a series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's like 
pretty fascinating uh, story. I mean, it's like deep in the weeds, but it, it it's basically a story of how like local news back in the day was like gangbusters on the ground badass journalism (laughs) like today i think we have an idea of what local news is and it's kind of not quite like but back in like in that portland market you had your abc affiliate your cbs affiliate your nbc affiliate and like fox like came in like a little bit like after those guys but like they the the competitiveness between those three or four stations were so intense that they were all like extraordinarily competing over the Roshni story because it was by far the biggest story going at the time from Portland it was like an hour and a half van ride out to the ranch and back in that day the ranch the Roshni Shapuram was like actually very open to local media because the guru Bhagwan it was a way to like kind of disseminate the yeah. message get the get the message out you know attract followers but so these like they're, they're news teams, but really they're like almost these small little documentary teams themselves, two videographers and like, and a news reporter and a sound guy. These four person teams would take these vans out to this ranch and they would like crush. I mean, they, they would go out there for a full day. They'd get unbelievable footage. They'd rack focus. They like had it down. They'd get great interviews. They'd get provocative interviews. And then what happened is there was one really big station out there called KGW, and I forget what if their affiliation was, but they basically early on made the decision, like, we are not going to tape over any of the Rosh Nishumatic tapes. And part of the big switch from shooting on film in local news stations to Umatic, re-taping over those Umatic tapes was yep. like a cost-saving measure. That was like the big pitch. But it was like a pretty forward-thinking new uh, station director out there that said, we're not going to tape over all this, so we're going to hold this collection it sat at kgw until i believe like the late 90s these stations get sold all the time new management came in and is like why is half of our basement filled with this story that happened 15 years ago let's throw it all out and luckily that's when like this the Oregon historical society said like listen we have a lot of artifacts here but we also have like a big storage facility just give it to us and we'll hold on to it by the time that we found the collection it was kind of at the end of its shelf life to be honest i think Mm -hmm. like umatic only really lasts you know 30 35 40 years and so for the oregon historical society um i don't think that they quite had the i i I can't even really remember what the digitization cost was i think it was in like the 40 to fifty thousand dollar range i don't think that they really had that but us coming off battered bastards we had just kind of gotten the first paycheck of our life in a way and we just had this opportunity so we made a quick deal with them which is like listen we'll digitize this all well you can have the footage on hard drives we just want to be able to use it in our documentary project and they were like a great partner but that's kind of the story on how yeah no it's 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 amazing because i'm contending with that in a couple of things now and it's so rare to have access to those like camera original dailies because then you can whether you construct verite scenes out of it or whether you're you know it's material that you can work with in a way that's not just like finish cut news package and tom brokaw says whatever he says you know you've got the material i always call like archival verite which is like so unique to to be able to do that and like that was just Something that we were able to do in Wild Country because of these raw tapes that were kept. Also, just like, yeah, it's deep in the, but being able to edit without like a baked in music track or yeah. like, like something, it's like to have just the raw material that you're totally able to reinvent. It was like, yeah, I, I, I think it's something that I doubt we'll have again. Like it just, it was a lot of things came together on that specific story. The stars totally aligned. Give gift from the cinema gods to you guys. On, and, to the, and then subsequently from you guys to the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how do you go about putting the team together? So, you know, you've cut a reel, you've got the bronze who you've worked with on on bastards um and then how do you get to the duplasses how does it end up at netflix like what's the path from there so the path was yeah our first partners were josh and dan braun and then like my wife who had produced battered bastards was producing this so it was kind of like the five of us um we had taken it out to market to sell kind of uh based on like the archive only um kind of teaser we didn't have much luck in that places were interested in it as like a feature only but at that point like i had bought in so much into this vision of a long-form series that we kind of just held to our guns at that point josh braun had been a sales agent for mark duplass for years selling like puffy chair and some of his earlier indie films 
And he was like, hey, guys, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Duplass Brothers, which we were. We were kind of big fans of, like, those mumblecore films growing up. Yeah. He's, like, he loves documentaries. He's got this, like, deal at HBO. He's looking to kind of get into the nonfiction space. Can I send him the teaser? And we were like, dude, absolutely. Like, any, anything to help. Like, this would be amazing. And, like, the next day we were meeting with Mark kind of at his office um, at the Bronson Studios. And he was like, I love this. Let's let – how can Jay and I help you, you know? Um, and it was just like a – we got along super well. We pitched it out from there. And I think having – their kind of guidance is like a creative backstop kind of gave uh, distributors like a little bit made them feel a little bit safer, I think, in doing it as a series. Um, and how and much so, are you how much are you breaking story with them? Like, say, so early on, you've got you've got access to the tapes, you know, yeah. the basic architecture of where it begins, where it sure. ends. But like, how thoroughly have you gotten into the weeds in terms of, OK, it's six episodes or it's, right. what it, you know, like yeah. and how much are you using those guys to get your arms around the story and structure? Sure. So. Just to step back, like Mac and I are like big believers in like we, we pretty much like write the story out as almost of as, as if it's like a screenplay before we even like start interviews or filming or anything like that. And so I know a lot of doc filmmakers just be like, oh, I just start and I follow the story where it goes. Like either Mac and I aren't smart enough or talented enough to do that. So we like early on like to really kind of be like, man, here's the inciting incident. Like here's like end of act one. Here's a twist in act two. Like, here's how, here's our cliffhanger at the end of the episode. And so we, Mac and I, uh, really like kind of detailed, like plotted out those six episodes. Mark and Jay were like really super more supportive on like logistic, like business end. They were really cool about like, dude, you guys know what you're doing. You know the story better than anyone. It's a hard story to kind of like give creative feedback on because it's so vast. Um, and so really it was just kind of Mac and I scripting the thing out and then, then having their support as like a production company to kind of give us the backstop to go do it. Which was like huge. I mean, it's kind of uh, thinking about it now, looking back, it's like, cause it, it was the weirdest pitching process where we were getting yeses from everyone as a feature. Right. <laughs> and it was like an incredibly difficult position to be in where you're so hungry to do your next project you're getting like good offers and you're turning them down and you're trying not to be arrogant about it where you're like, I love that you just greenlit me for 90 minutes, but we really want to do six hours here. And it was in that stage that we went to Mark and Jay. And the fact that they came on board is just awesome because it's, 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 it's hard to bring someone a project when you're like, by the way, everyone in town kind of, didn't really want to do this as, right. as a series. They're into it as a feature, but we really want. And so with Mark and Jay, honestly, the conversations, which we didn't have to get to that point because Netflix ended up coming in and, and taking it, but was like, do we do this independently? Do we just go make this without a distributor and try and sell it as a full package when it's all done, which is like an, a really awesome way to go about it if you can do that. But that's like ultimately where they were really helpful. But but yeah, we like, I remember like we had the sizzle. We had like this, we called it like the Bible. It was like a deck that we had that kind of had all six episodes sketched out and it's so interesting that you're saying that because so i'm somebody that has like always sort of jagged back and forth between like docs and narrative stuff so like i spent three or four years in like a dick wolf writer's room and then i would get tired of that and go back to make a doc and then you know go and make a feature or whatever but it like really what you're describing is you did kind of a two-man writer's room to begin with so that you really had the architecture of where the narrative is going and how we've gotten to work you know with my close collaborators now is we literally do doc writers rooms where it's like okay who are the top you know the top three of us that are in it or three or four whatever the case may be and like let's go through and break it exactly as you would a scripted series what are the beats what are the order how do we interbraid you know the different storylines what's the bounce out from one the intro into two so that long before the edit begins and it may change as it always does in the edit you at least have a very clear architecture and story structure going in Absolutely. I, and I think our father was a screenplay writer growing up. So like our dinner discussions were watching movies and discussing character arcs and inciting incidences and and, and epilogues and prologues yep. and things like this. So we came from like a writing background, which I think helps. And 
I think that having that going into your interviews actually makes us better interviewees or yep. interviewers in a way. And I, cause I think we know the story so well and we know how certain things can fit on the spot live in that interview. But of course we also leave ourselves open to like letting the interview go where it goes naturally. And some, and I always say like Mac and I always say like, we probably end up with about like 50% of what we initially like beat cheat, like our initial yep. Bible. Like by the time we start day one in the edit room, we probably got about 50% yeah. of like everything I, we wanted. I feel like 25% changes after the interviews and then right. 25% changes in the edit bay yep. where you're like, yep. yeah, I just like it. The edit bay is like really when the rubber kind of hits the road yep. and you're feeling like is, is this section or is this character as fascinating or should I bring this character in now or does it come after this section? It's like a fascinating process. I, and I don't know if you feel about I mean, I feel like I picked this up on, on watching your documentaries too, but it's like, we like, we like edit in sections. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, I mean, we can do the assembly cut, but when, and we really only organize it by like music cue changes where it's like, we'll have a cue go for like, what would you say? Like five, four or five, four minutes. Or five minutes, you know? Yeah. And it's like, we'll work on that section and then try to build in like a little bit of a mini beat that carries you on to the next section, whether it's like a new character or intro. And like Wild Wild Country, I felt like we just, that, why we were so passionate about doing it as a long form series versus a feature is like we really felt like we will be able to actually build up both arguments on both sides of this story. Like it's one story, but we're talking to different groups of people that have vastly different perspectives on this. In a feature, I just felt less confident that I'd be able to like really capture and build up both sides. I felt like either one way or the other, I'd be like, the arc would be leaning towards like a protagonist and an antagonist, you know? But in a series, I really felt confident to be like, nah, I think we'll have the runway and the canvas to like bolster both sides and make it, I mean, it sounds, but like make it more like a boxing match or something, like something that's like a fascinating rumble. It was so brilliant. It was so brilliant and so effective. It was so funny because I, you know, I just sat down and rewatched it again, you know, it's pre preparing for you guys. Yeah. And what's so, what, what struck me again, you know, not just being swallowed by the story, but asking myself, like, well, how do they do it? What was the process? And like, thus this podcast. But, um, you know, I was struck by, you present the story, like, let's talk about point of view for a second. So, like, when we begin, there's um, kind of the outsider point of view, the town, like the town of Antelope. And the first people that you meet, you're hearing about it from the outsider sort of perspective. And then at a certain point, you sort of dip in and, you know, Sheila gets introduced and then suddenly it's you're now seeing the entire thing from the vantage point of the insider looking out. And then it's this very careful construction as you're kind of whipping between the two of those and making the audience sort of have conflicting feelings about them. And then it struck me that by the end, you know, Jane's arc is then somebody that starts from within inside the story and yeah. walks outside of it. And I just thought it was so striking and beautiful, the, 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 the sort of narrative construction of it. And I'm wondering how much of that, like, are you going in with and you're like, okay, I know what the blueprint is. Now I'm going to execute that. And how much are you finding the, the rhythm of that in the edit? Sure. So I think like going into it, like there has been a little bit, we felt like, like a formula with cult docs in general, which is like, oh, cult equals evil, crazy, dumb people, right? That was kind of like the, always the narrative, but they always felt like a little one note because you know that from frame one that like the cult does something bad and you shouldn't join it. And that's kind of the doc. And so one of the things that we found in our research is like Mac and I would have these like hours long conversations where we're like, geez, it's kind of like the group's kind of interesting. Like they're kind of self-sufficient. They kind of like grow their own vegetarian food. It's kind of like got their own uh, like a, a economic system here, their yep. own like bank system. So we were constantly like, yes, like this group is going to do bad things by the end of the story, but like, let's be honest with ourselves and like where our own faults lie as human beings and like put us in the shoes of our characters at this time. And I think like doing that, like not, I don't know how to word this, but I think sometimes doc filmmakers, they make an air where they have to be like the smartest person in the room as the storyteller. And I think that if you can like humble yourself and be like, man, I'm really going to dive into the POV of my characters and bring like their world to life. And like, 
I'm going to try and step back my own personal opinions and like let my characters take the reins of the story and it goes where it goes, you know? Beautifully put. I, 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 we found like a real like kinetic energy to doing that, that we find like works for the stuff that we do. It's so interesting. I was rereading over the weekend a book that I've read many times. I'm sure you guys have too, but Sidney Lumet's Making Movies, you know? Sure. And he mm-hmm. talks about sort of by the time he finally ends up on set, what he's actually doing is, and like looking down, you know, the barrel of the lens, pre-video assist days or whatever. And he's like, I'm literally experiencing it as the, I'm trying to have that experience the same time the characters are, so that I know, like if something's false, I'm like fully dialed and like wired into this. And it's exactly that kind of like empathy that you guys are talking about, where it's, not casting judgment or not sort of coming to a moral conclusion, but understanding it from within. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. A thousand percent. So I think there's like that component on like the humanity level, which is like we try to keep an open mind, like we're non-judgmental people in general. And I think we're curious about people and like how they find themselves in the situations that they, they do. So there's like the, the, I guess, like the human component. And then there's also, I just think like the dramatic film component. I, there's a quote from David Fincher that I love, which he's like, I think he says like great drama is always like giving each of your characters like their best argument. Like no one, like everyone should be right in a scene. Like everyone should be arguing the best, like their strongest argument. And so I, I've always felt that like that way in docs too, instead of trying to be like, like oh, this group's bad. These people are bad. These people are good. Like, Instead of going like maybe the like traditional activist based approach to documentary filmmaking, like letting our characters like speak for themselves, whether regardless of how I feel about it, I think actually maybe this might be like too lofty, but maybe leads to like higher truth in, in a way. And that's probably as like hippy-dippy as I'll get about storytelling, but like in a way, personally for me as a viewer, I I find to get more out of watching something like that. You're you're trusting an audience to be smart, you know, like a couple of times, and I've had this experience too, like, you know, and sometimes gotten like beat up by by the critics for it, but like when I make the 7-5 and I'm embedded with a crew of corrupt cops, I don't want to moralize to you and tell you yes. what they're doing is right. be- like it's more interesting exactly. to sort of like what is that experience like snorting a rail off a cop car at three in the morning <laughs> right. and then robbing 100%. a dope dealer. You know right. what I mean? And you and are so- trusting your audience. You know, like you, it's like listen, I, I, I never thought that people would walk away from Wild Wild Country and be like poisoning an entire town with salmon Manila and sending seven hundred fifty people. It's like a good, good human being thing to do. Like to me, that was like obvious. So it's like that gave us the creative freedom to be like, well, let's play with this and then like yeah like chap is kind of talking more about like the like kind of the theoretical concept behind it but then just like in a real practical sense it's it's fascinating because it's like it affects your editing decisions it especially affects your music decisions it affects your framing like like choosing to build everyone up instead of taking everyone down even though they're wrong is like as a filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker like an incredibly exciting part of the art form. You know what I mean? Like I, like we just made a um, part of untold, like had a Danbury trashers documentary. It was loosely based on a, uh, like it's, it's based on a minor league hockey team that was owned by. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. A mob associate. But like, we were just like, we, we got Jimmy Galante's intro into that film, like almost pretty late. Like we had already gone like cut three or four, you know what I mean? But it's like, he comes in under like dark music he kind of monologues for a bit about like how people are afraid to approach him because of all the publicity he's gotten in his life. And like, listen, I'm not saying everything that Jimmy Galante did in his life is, is great or fantastic, but like aesthetically, I got like very excited by that scene in a way where I was like, Oh, I'm like leaning forward and listening to what this man is saying. Um, and it's like fun when you find a team that can kind of execute those. We always call them like a bag of tricks, which is kind of a demeaning way to say it. But it, I do feel it is. It's like you kind of have a bag of tricks and you kind of keep using them, you know? Well, you know, one of the things that I was struck by is like you really give people their entrances, you know, just like you do in a feature film. Like by the time somebody comes and I remember two things. Uh, one, just a quick aside. I remember vividly when you guys 
guys had shot that with Adam Stone, and Adam was shooting the last narc for me, and he's like, "Dude, this shit is bonkers!" Like, let me tell you about. It. So yeah, I've been yeah. so I was so psyched to like see that movie, and like whole separate podcast. I'm coming back for that one because I got a million uh, questions. By the way, bonkers is such an Adam Stone word. At that, I it guess. certainly is. It certainly is. He would he would come onto our set and just share stills of the last yeah. narc, and he's like, "You got to get better locations. Killers killing you guys in the locations department." And I'm like, "All it's right." So funny. Well, so let's talk about Adam for a minute because sure, yeah. like, you know, one of the things that was so striking, you know, that I noticed in retrospect, you know, seeing it again is like Adam's photography is so graphic and so yes. beautiful and and I realized how many shots and I subconsciously not until I looked back and I was like oh I ripped off that I ripped off this you know the like slow-mo walking when exactly. we first see Sheila yeah. and you know the sort of like graphic portraiture of the attorney at the end you know and it's just like so beautiful talk about work like how did you get to Adam talk about sure. working with a fee a guy who shoots features as well as docs and sure. what that process is in the original photography because it's a striking component of your work. Definitely. So yeah, I started, like, I went to film school to be a DP. So that was like what I actually studied was like filming, cameras, lighting. So it's always like phot photography has always kind of been a main interest of mine. Doing Wild Wild Country, we were actually, we had another DP booked who like literally bailed two weeks before our first day of production had just gotten hired on like a big, big film, which we understood. We're like, dude, go, give we go do your thing. Like we'll figure it out. Like that day I read, I was reading like a Panavision blog interview with Adam Stone, who obviously we'd been fans of his work through all the Jeff Nichols movies. Yeah. And in this interview, he was like, oh, actually documentary filmmaking is like my passion. And like, I hope that I can work on a documentary someday, like in this interview. And so I immediately just like tried to find who his agent was. I like, I hit him up. I was like, I'm sure Adam, there's no way this will work out, but here's our trailer. We're filming in Switzerland in 14 days. Like, is there any way that Adam might be interested in this? It was like a total Hail Mary, you know? And the next day, like we were on a Skype with Adam and I realized, like, right away, we had very similar interests, likes, uh, aesthetic things that we found interesting. And I think, like, our big conversation was how do we, like, how you're dealing with a talking head interview, which is, like, an incredibly boring visual format. Like, just inherently. Like, it's a very flat image. Like, how, if we're going to be seeing talking head interviews for 50% of this thing, like... What, what do we do here? Like, how do we make this somewhat interesting to, to look at? And I think one thing that I was fascinated by was like, is there a way that like the settings, the background settings maybe give you a little bit of insight into who this character is, their story, where they come their from, world. their yep. culture, their world. And I realized that like traditionally docs had always been filmed on kind of like long lenses, like kind of shallow depth of field, like very close portraits, which are, which are fantastic. But I start Adam and I start throwing out the idea like what if we shot like these more like wider profiles as like our A camera that would give you a sense of their universe. And we kind of just like took it and ran with it. And I think once we kind of once we had that kind of concept, it really helped in like finding locations that fit for like wide angle anamorphic lenses that would photograph well. And then I I feel like he's just so sensitive in his lighting and like lighting faces from his film he's background brilliant. yeah he's amazing. you know i mean I, I remember natural but heightened and so I, those were kind of our things with Adam. i don't even know if i can articulate but i remember like you guys having like and i was like listening in and chiming in here and there but it was like an hour-long discussion on like mixed color temps like in <laughs> like the framing which like yeah i found super fascinating like an adam is like a goddamn yeah. genius at that where he's like splash of blue over here but like red will come over it's and amazing. like when you really do press pause and look at some of his, his interview frames not just in wild wild country but all over the place and you're like man dude this like color temperature palette from left to right here is so fascinating and like what he's doing here is so it's also invisible like it's yeah. not it's not distracting or it's not overpowering in any way but it's such like a flavor and then i remember on like close-ups like us talking about like waiting the cam like waiting the subject you know on like the front third of the camera which like inherent for some of our characters like it just gave a little bit of punch in a way that was fascinating and then and then his b-roll is just like Adam Stone's B-roll, you just kind of like it's let that dude loose. Jaw drop, and, I know, just and, like go make and art, Anal, dude. Like, 
Antelope is like, I was kind of naively nervous about like bringing people because I'm like, dude, this town is what it is, you know? And like, I remember Adam getting out of his car and he's like, this is the town that you can point a camera anywhere and it like is exactly what you want it to look like. Like there is, he's like, this is a film set. Like it's our playground. And we went on the ranch and it was just like our playground again. So the locations were like amazing. I think think for a long time in docs, there were like doc DPs and then there were like film DPs. And I think like it's been cool cool to see like like if you get a good dp that's like artful and soulful and like smart like you're gonna walk away with good imagery and like that invisible barrier always felt a little silly to me. well i I think the barrier is also disappearing like in a way like what we're talking about again and again from the like writer's room component to like the visual structure of it is like infusing docs with all of these techniques that have been like narrative techniques or sensibilities or whatever to take the medium and like you know hopefully widen it or expand it in some way you know totally and i think like i it's funny earlier so that you don't like watch a lot of docs and like the truth is like i i I don't either as well i mean like of course I, i i've watched all the classics and and i love documentary filmmaking but truly like i fell in love with filmmaking through like spike jones and paul thomas anderson and like these really gifted visual film narrative filmmakers you know and so I think every time we tackle docs, we're trying to bring a little bit of that spirit to to, to doc filmmaking. Yeah, you're doing you're you're doing an amazing job based on the record so far. Okay, so I want to dive a little bit further into this, which is, you know, in the original photography that you guys do, the camera is almost constantly in motion, whether it's sliders that are creeping in, or you know, dollies alongside, or even the aerials. There's a there's a like a constant kind of like creep to it, and in a very effective and beautiful and filmic way. How much of that is you know, okay, th- this is going to be the like grammar of this movie, and we are going to be constantly moving it, and it's going to be on dollies, and the drone shots that we're going to do are going to sort of match that. Like, how much of a language are you putting together? Sure. So I think like in the beginning, it was a little bit of just like, okay, like shit, we love Terrence Malick movies. We love what like Chivo does in those movies visually and like the poetic movement of cameras. And so I think at first it was just like, is imitating, <laughs> imitating, you know, stealing, really, in a stealing, way, from the you know, stealing, stealing, one hundred percent. Like, how can we bring a little bit of Chivo and the Terrence Malick esque vibe to to doc filmmaking? You know, and I, that was something Adam and I talked about as well. And like filming, like what we call like vignettes or like B roll portraits of of our characters that are like exist somewhere between the real world and some fantasy world. Like that always interested me. That like the docs that we make are such a construction, mm-hmm. like everything from the lighting to the music. And I, I'm open about it. They're, I'm not, I'm not trying to hide it. And I think that like the slow-mo shot of Sheila walking and sitting in frame and you see, see the film lights to me is like, I think our way as directors are telling the audience, like, yeah, we are manipulating like the fuck out of this thing. Like, but hopefully you trust us as storytellers. And like, we're doing all this in like the right vein of, of trying to tell a good story. Like, and, and so I, I like to be open about our cinematic manipulations. And I think like slow-mo footage and some of this B-roll we shoot is a way for us to like acknowledge that to the audience, if, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and one of the things that sort of dovetails with that that I noticed is there was a striking use of silence and a very deliberate rhythm that you guys, you know, achieved. And some of that is rhythm through silence, you know. The first time that we see much of the archival material, it's without the gnat sound to it. Yeah, right. And when we're seeing much of the original photography, it's without, or even in the interviews, there's that like really striking moment in one of the first interviews. What's the attorney's name? I'm forgetting his name. Naran. Naran, who I, amazing character. But there's this like, he takes this like long breath and you just stay in the wide shot for a long time and then he kind of composes himself finishes the thought but it's indicative of like I saw that style being reproduced editorially in the rhythm Mm -hmm. the silence of it the careful use of the slow-mo all the way throughout and it was just like so magnificently crafted 
Yeah, Thank I, you. I, yeah, they, I mean, I think that you're like you're trying to like paint with as many colors as you're given, you know, like all the time to make these sections as fascinating and interesting and make the transitions like as compelling as possible. And like, I think Chap is right. It's like these are at the end of the day, sit down conversations, which are inherently feel a little limiting you know but when you have moments that do break out of that construct or find an interesting way to remind the audience that this is a bit of a constructed conversation we did sit this person down we did ask this, this person hundreds and hundred questions over a two or three day period of time and we're condensing this down to one percent of the overall interview like it it, it it at least gets like my brain going and 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 i find interesting yeah, in i way, think you know? the first the first thing you talked about was interesting which is like the first archive shots of antelope and you could actually just hear like the wind going and like the trees and stuff and i remember like talking to other doc filmmakers and it was talking to our sound designer and my brother who's who does all of our music and sound but like a lot of the doc filmmakers this was like back in 2016 when we were editing were like it was almost like taboo to like recreate sound design for footage and and understandably so like if you're more on the journalistic end of filmmaking of doc filmmaking i get that like whatever the recorded audio is like should be what's underneath there but the more i started thinking about it I, on our sound designer we were like let's just recreate all of the archival audio so that yep. it feels a more immersive and like more modern in a and way and more cinematic and more cinematic and like we started playing around with it and like within an hour i was just like yeah like hands down like we should just absolutely like sound design every footstep every wind like let's just sound design it think, like a regular movie like 30 wind and sounds. like maybe sometimes you go a little far like sometimes i watch it back now like with some distance and i'm like oh man we really like we really went after with the sound in that scene but it's no it's so it's it's so effective and it's it's all part and parcel of that same thing which is there's this sort of myth about documentaries or maybe it was i'm not sure it was ever true like yeah. it's as soon as you point a camera at somebody and make a decision about what's in the frame, what isn't, what yes. questions get asked, as soon as you make an edit, it's a completely constructed experience. Oh, yes. And yet audiences, you know, once upon a time were sort of unaware of that. And you guys pushing all of this um, film grammar, you know, movie storytelling, injecting it into the nonfiction form, it, it, it like expanded the boundaries of what a doc can be. You know, yeah, I, I kind of always felt like you, which is that like, I think there's this misconception that somehow like verite filmmaking, like as visible as you can be, is somehow like a more like morally like pure, truthful, pure, pure way to do it. And any of us that make make docs know, like, anytime you're slicing up images and like cutting and playing with time and condensing, like, they're all artistic decisions that you're making to tell a story, and so. I feel like let's wear it on our sleeve. Let's own it. Like, let's not try and hide it. Let's be like very open that like this is Roshni's perm through our artistic lens in a way. And like we're down for other people to do their version of Roshni's perm. Like, I just, just think that like once we got rid of that concept, I think it really opened up the possibilities of like what we could do with the genre. Yeah. And it's like even interviewing is just such a unique format to play with you know especially like on wild wild country especially we we've we've kind of gotten away from it to a degree because we're just doing more stuff now but we did long interviews i mean yeah. we did like long days that's how i do i, think we, too. I yeah. think we did i think we interviewed sheila for five days you know i mean how many hours do you think we had with sheila 30 yeah, hours 40 hours? Like and then it's like by the time you crunch the numbers of how many and sheila's in wild wild country a lot no doubt like she's on the screen but literally when you compare it to the overall interview we did with her you're talking less than a percent Yep. is is what gets into that. And it's just it's like a fascinating process to go through. And I'm almost, I'm like open about this with my subjects. It's like, I'm, we're going to talk for a long time. But at the end of the day, like I'm going to take the most interesting 1% of 1% of stuff that you said. And it's not gotcha, but it's just like, oh, that line is fascinating. That point you made is great. That's coming in. That's coming into the select bin. And then this long story that isn't really capturing my imagination or attention, or we struggle in a way to make this a part of our story, like doesn't get included. I'm in. curious for for you, like when you when you're editing Tiller and like doing this stuff, are you having a lot of these conversations like with your collaborators and your editors on like 
how far can we can we push what we're doing like nonstop nonstop and i and i am like you know one of those people that's like where's 11 because we're going to turn it down from there you know or maybe not (laughs) maybe we'll crank it past you know (laughs) right yeah um but i think like what's so every time i finish a doc i'm so like burnt out and tired the process is such a beating and i'm like that's it i'm never doing it again i'm only doing whatever but like what ends up happening is Nonfiction is like breathing and alive in a way. Like the sure. movies haven't really changed in a long time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And like docs are literally evolving the like style and what you can do with them. And, and, and so it's always like, because if you look at what's happening on the printed page, if you read mm-hmm. Jeff Dyer or whoever yeah. you like, right? Or even like sure. Hunter Thompson, like yeah, in right. a weird way, nonfiction filmmaking is way behind what is happening on the, on the page or in podcasts or on whatever. Yeah. So I feel like it's this opportunity for us to go like, oh, we can juice the medium now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's tr- like, I think even after Wild Wild Country, like there were like a couple scripted opportunities that were like, oh, maybe, maybe not. And like people, people not always ask, but I think people are coming like, well, why haven't you done scripted yet? And I always say like, I still feel like we're in such the early ages of like what this long form doc storytelling can do. And like, every project people are doing new th- things and, and figuring out new styles and ways. And I feel like it's in its infancy stage. And I do get like a ton of energy from that and being like, man, like the sky is truly the limit with this genre. And like, let's ride this wave and keep trying to expand the art form and see where it takes us all. Man, so like ta- ultimately, yeah. yeah. No, no, go ahead. I mean, interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I think that's just when I really do kind of have like larger conversations about like what documentary filmmaking is or what, or what your processes are and our processes, like you do, you do get a sense of how spoiled I feel like we all are, which is like, you, I forget it at least, which is like, we are, I feel like I am the target audience for what I make. Like I feel special and spoiled in that like I'm making something that I personally want people like me to find interesting and be interested by yeah. you know which i find like like and i i do i actually have a lot of respect for people that work in the f- entertainment industry that that don't have that that like if you're making children's animation or maybe you're doing reality television and you're a smart person you're like hey it's actually not for me but the game that i play is like projecting an audience that i think is going to come to this and 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 enjoy this but at the end of the day like i just so thankful that we get to work in, in a medium and a genre where it's like dude i I feel like I'm the first person in line to want to watch this stuff. You know, like I think it's like, it's what's so motivating about continuing to work in it. You know, I I love it. That's beautifully said. And it's like, at the end of the day, if you're not making a movie or a series or whatever it is that you want to be like number one, like audience to like this, this shit is too hard. Otherwise, you know, it's simply not worth it. It's so hard. Uh, it's so hard to make docs like people uh, get a lot of like Facebook messages or this and like advice and like I don't know how to like tell people like it's so hard like it really is like it's a miracle every time like just to get it done is is kind of a miracle and then to actually have it like be like fuck this actually turned out pretty good is it's just such an uphill battle the whole time it's so hard I was talking to Alan Hughes uh, you know a couple of weeks ago about the Defiant Ones and he's like do you hate this shit too like when I finished <laughs> Defiant Ones I literally like checked into like you know rehab for 30 days uh, just to like not talk to anybody you know and it was so funny w- but, it, but it was so like it is so hard yeah we always say like there I guess it's like any art form but like once it acts like I always just say like our shit sucks for so long like it's just so like I get I watch like the rough cuts and I'm like it's so bad I'm like breaking out in hives yeah and then like you just chisel away and you chisel away and like it finally starts gathering magic and momentum and then the problem is like once it actually starts getting kind of good it, it it starts to feel effortless and that's when I can tell like all right we're getting somewhere because it, it just feels effortless but then when people watch it, it's like, I feel like like no one really knows all the fucking time and late nights and like yeah. grind in, especially the nonfiction space. It is just. Uh, so how do you, how do you kind of like keep your confidence along the way? And I, this came up with Alan, you know, some too, and it's sort of with everybody. I know for me, it's like, I'm in like a dead panic every single yeah. time. Like, <laughs> is this going to work? Was my idea yeah. right? Am I crazy? And then like people around, it's like, you know, you have to kind of like, okay, it's good. Like, we'll get there. But how do you guys do it along the way where you, you know, don't get knocked off course with it being yeah. you know, shitty for six months before it's great. Yeah. 
I, I honestly don't feel like we have figured that out. And I feel like probably our work-life balance is, is like nowhere where it needs to be. And I think like the dread like every day of just being like, man, this isn't that good. Like it's not good yet, you know, and just like grinding at it. And like, I haven't quite, it, I always say it's similar to like climbing Mount Everest where it's like, yes, like it gets a little bit easier every time you do it. But like you know still, the trail, you know the path, you know the It's still fucking hard to climb it's still Everest. Everest. It's still Everest. You still, you, Everest, you, you still you know? start at fucking base camp every time and you're like, my God, dude, this is yeah. like, like, this is tough. I do you think know? people think like, oh, you've done this before. Like, it's easy. And it's like, dude, every project is just. I, I will say that like one thing that like we kind of sometimes will cherry pick if we're doing a feature doc or an episode or like we'll cherry pick a scene that does cut together well and is a little bit easier and we'll polish that not because that's like smart to do in terms of like, well, dude, you have to make six hours of the television here or dude, you're doing untold. You have to make five of these things and you got a second season that you got to go start work on too. But sometimes like we will rabbit hole in a scene, but because we know it's like really, really good. And then like, you can start your day by watching that scene and be like, this is like, th this is motivating me. Like, I love what we did here and I can watch this scene. a And it's, it's so like gross to say that, to like watch your own scene and like be so excited about it. And like, think you're just like this, like artistic genius that pulled it out. But I will like shamelessly admit that like sometimes watching what we did in, in the Bay with our editor and being like, dude, we are the guys that made that is what can kind of get you, get you onto the next scene that fucking sucks. You know? Well, but also it's vibe, right? Like once yeah. you have nailed something and you're like, okay, I know it's there. Like once you've sort of achieved the tone, the look, Look, the feel, the like, the vibe, you know, then it like, it can also inform the whole rest of the process. Those lonely passages in the doldrums where you're like, dude, is this going to, you know, it, it, yep. it's useful too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So I've got two, two, two last questions for you and I'll let you guys get back to your insane schedules and, and I'll get back <laughs> okay. to my insane schedule. <laughs> this is way more fun than being in the edit bay. <laughs> I know. I've been looking <laughs> forward to this all day. I, was, yeah, dude, I, I just want to ask these guys questions yeah, about yeah. this work that I love. Um, the animation was so striking and so um, restrained and yet powerful. I'm curious about the choice to use animation um, and to use it sparingly. And then the restraint that you used with regards to, like the motion is so limited that you see. It may be just the like teardrops coming off of Sheila, you know, or it may just be a completely st static shot of, uh, the Bagwan and and you're able to hold or then and then all of a sudden the like American flag drops in the background but I think the like simplicity of that stuff is a significant component to its power so I'm curious where how you got to that those choices sure so I think like at first I think it's always like a little bit of like logistics which is like okay like born out of Sheila <laughs> born out of necessity Sheila tells this great story of you know, Bhagwan putting his finger on her forehead and she is now going to be the new queen bee of Roshanish Purim. And it's like, okay, we have no archive of that. Like we've got it. We've got this talking head interview that she told that, that story in seven minutes. We got to cut it down to 45 seconds. Like, so you're cutting, you're cutting up the audio like crazy. You got to cover it up with something. Um, and so then that's where you're like, all right, do we use photos? Do we do this? And like, I did think that there was these opportunities for each episode to have like one animated vignette. And I was like, I think it should be like, every time you should see it, it should be like a little Pavlovian bell for the audience that like, this is actually an important story for some reason, either thematically or character development. But the director is pointing to us to say like, hey, this is maybe a little bit special and different than like the other scenes. It's almost like slow down the pace too, I think, on some of those sections. You know, you yeah. really like kind of slow the rhythm down For in sure. a way that like lets it sit, but yeah. Totally. And so then it's like, okay, that that's cool concept, like artistically, aesthetically, how do we want to do this? I found this young kid, Corey Brickley, who had done like really kind of like super surreal, but like 2D-esque, like simple drawings that he'd done for like book covers and vinyl album covers and hadn't done anything in the documentary space, which I kind of liked because yep. it was like, hey, let's kind of figure this out together, you know? Um, and usually like I feel bad when you're, when you try to do these things because like people send over rough drafts and you're giving tons of notes and like then it always ends up being like a little tough and awkward. Like 
the first stuff that Corey just sent over, I was like, dude, you like just nailed it. Like we just got lucky. I like, I wish that I could say like, I gave him like the perfect direction and all this, but it was a little bit like haphazard. We were out shooting. We needed to do animations. Like we kind of just like, like, let's go with this kid. I think he can pull it off and like just turned in gold, you know? And so I wish I could like take more credit for like you giving him. him the direction, <laughs> but I, I picked him. I guess that was the good thing I did is I picked him. Well, I mean, th that is a lot of this, right? It's like you picked Adam Stone, you picked the yeah. Duplasses, you picked, you right. know, Corey and, you know, you picked each other to work with. Sure, and yeah. I guess that's my sort of like final question for you guys, which is, you know, working as you do, you know, as brothers and as, you know, making use of the kind of like hive mind of, of, of sort of the two of you, how do you allocate who's doing what and what is that process? And, and, and you know, you look like, and the work is brilliant and it speaks in one coherent voice and you guys talk in a way where I'm getting different things from each of you, but there's such a uh, symbiotic thing. How, how, do you, how do you do that? Sure. So I think like as brothers, like a like, yes, we like all the same music and bands and movies and grew up in a house where we watched the same shit and liked it, you know. So I think a like that's really easy because like we like 99 percent of the same stuff. I think in terms of like how we split up duties, I think it actually works really well for us, which is like. I, yes, I went to film school. I wanted to be a DP. Mac was a history major and like way more interested in like writing and, and history and these kinds of things. Mac's like way smarter than I am, which, which helps. Like, so when it comes to like research, Mac does all the interviews, like super, super good at like knowing historical stories and then being like personable with people. And then for me, I'm more of like a DP editor. So I'm usually trying to think like, how do we bring this alive visually and musically and more on like maybe some of like the art side. Um, so I feel like that combination works really well. And then I think the third thing that's just like super helpful and maybe like directors who have like a really close producer have this relationship, but like we're actually able to be like way more cutthroat with each other because like we don't have to worry about like, Oh, am I going to hurt his feelings? Is he not going to show up at work the next day? I think like, a lot of collaborating with people is a little bit of handholding and like making sure everyone's good. But I th think Mac and I have found like a really good way to like, without being mean, without like, s like hurting each other, like being super honest and direct and like knowing at the end of the day, like we still love each other and love totally. to make art together. It's, it's been like an interesting time too, because battered bastards was like the only thing we were doing. And super on everything together. Wild Wild Country was a huge heavy lift, so got to kind of spread out more. And then Untold was just like this, such a gargantuan mammoth, different stories. We're doing 10 docs, like that. It was almost like really fun in a way where it's like, I almost, looking back, miss how much time we had to do everything together. Where it's like, yeah. now it's like, hey man, there's 10 fires on, there's 10 fires going, like I'll go put out these seven, like you just stay focused on these three and like we'll stay in constant communication and kind of like try and slay this dragon together. Um, so like on a logistical level, and I think it's like going more and more in that direction. Like, I don't know, it, it feels like, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like when, you know, I know you've been making docs for, for a long time and like w I, when we got into it, it's like such, um, I don't want to say gold rush because that implies we're all making millions, but there's like a content rush yeah. here and so much more opportunity to do things, especially if you are in this like, you know, the Netflix buyer and an HBO. Like if you're in that system, there's like definitely a lot of work on the nonfiction side right now. So it's been like a huge learning experience of how to... It's like almost like we started as like more pure artists and I think we, we you know, we, we hold on to that, but you do start to like develop these like pro these producing logistic skills where like Untold was the first time that like we kind of show ran that, but worked with like really talented directors and got to like build that muscle skill set too. So it's like, I think, I think we're going through like different chapters together, which is like super fun and exciting 
because the challenges are different in, in a lot of different regards. At the end of the day, like you're still in the edit bay, pulling your hair out, trying to solve the same goddamn problems that you were trying to solve like seven years ago. It's just like a little bit of a different, your, your day to day is just like a little bit different. So. I'm curious, Tiller, what about you? Do you have like a brain trust? Do you have like producers that you work with all the time? Total, or like how do you total do brain trust. I always feel yeah. like a complete fraud when it says like a yeah. Tiller Russell film or series. <laughs> right. It's like, there's like, you know, two or three or four like close collaborators and editors and like everything is through the brain trust all the yeah. time where it's like what how do we make it better how do we make it better how do yeah. we make it and i've actually pulled my brother in too because yeah. i'm like dude you're the only person i trust <laughs> to like count the money and make it work you know right so yeah. so it's like you know it, it really is that because you and, want people that aren't gonna bullshit you that are going to push you to make it better but that can help you carry it because you can't be a one-man band and make 10 films simultaneously you know and sort of and keep the work up and so i'd love to actually kind of end on that which is a couple of things um to wrap it which is if you'll have me you know if you'll sit with me again i'd love to go through the untold experience because it is such a fundamentally different like enterprise in a lot of way and yet you're still having to be artists and authors and auteurs and yet manage it and i'm very i'm super fascinated to learn how it is and then the last thing that i just wanted to add was you know in there was like one line when i saw the first episode of untold you know the malice in the palace episode and it was the we ride together and I just like that's been my like mantra ever since. Man. We ride together. Yeah, we and I ride just, together. I love we ride that. together, so fam. <laughs> yeah, it's a great one, man. It's a Stephen Jackson at his best right there. That was like uh, I think that was like one of the first clips we got in that archive footage, and it really is the theme of that doc. But it's a it's a special line. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm so grateful for your time, and frankly, I'm so grateful for your work just as a fan. And I would love to have the chance for us to like you know all lean together and do something at some point or another. But let's thank do you. So likewise, much. dude loved everything that you've been doing so excited to see more to come and yeah let's 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 talk again this was a lot of fun all right this was super cool very cool take care thanks thank you thank you to the way brothers for making beautiful films for the world to enjoy and thank you for sharing your process with us keep killing it gentlemen i'm tiller russell catch you again soon on the dangerous art of the documentary the Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound, magic, and mix comes from Nathaniel, post-up audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for listening.